Hey, y'all young adults, welcome to church. Y'all having a good time? Yeah. Confession, I was just kidding. I'm not actually Australian. Luke is Australian, but I was kidding. Hey, I wish I could do the whole thing in an Australian accent, but I'm not that cool. I also wish I was from Australia, but I am not. That's all right. You guys, hey, welcome to church for young adults tonight. I'm glad that you guys are here. I've been praying a lot for this night. I'm pumped up for this night. I have a lot of expectations for this night. Maybe I'm just excited because spring is finally here and summer's right around the corner. Am I alone in that? Yeah, hey, in honor of spring being here, let's do, let's do two things. First of all, number one, turn to your neighbor, give them kind of an awkward smile and say, hey, you are my sunshine. Hey, you are my sunshine. I love you guys. You guys are so great. And secondly, and more importantly, in honor of spring and summer and their arrival, tonight we are going to talk about one of the greatest truths that is in the Bible. One of the greatest truths, the reality that because of Jesus, all of us are made completely new, not just once, but continually and consistently because we need it that way. You and I daily are being regenerated and restored and made new because of Jesus Christ, much like the beautiful seasons that we get to experience in Colorado. So let's start this the right way and let's pray and invite the presence of God into this building. Would you guys bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father God, thank you so much for tonight. God, I say this all the time. I know that you're here because you're everywhere, but we want you to know how welcome you are in this place tonight. Um, Not only do we need you here, God, we want you here so badly. So would you just overwhelm us with your presence tonight here, God? Would you blow us away with how you show up tonight, God? Do what I cannot do and change lives and transform hearts. I believe that you want to. I believe that you can, and we pray expectantly tonight, God. So I thank you in advance for what is going to happen in here and what you're going to do. And we pray all of these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. So we are in the final week of our series, so appropriately titled Native, Exploring the Faith That You've Always Had. And let me explain that really quick. When you first move to Colorado, like everything's awesome. Just like that song from the Lego movie, (laughs) Everything is Awesome. Exactly like that. I want to sing it, but we just don't have time, all right? You move to Colorado, everything is awesome, the weather's gorgeous, the mountains are magnificent, you actually go to them, and you take advantage of the fact that you live next to the mountains, and it kind of blows your mind that you get to live where you get to live. I felt that when I first moved here. I also felt that a few years ago when I got to move to Laguna Beach, and I lived a block from the ocean, and I was like, oh my gosh, that is the the ocean. Are you kidding me? That will never get old right out of my front door. But it kind of blew my mind that a lot of other people in Laguna Beach, for them, it was kind of like, yeah, that's just, it's the ocean. It's ordinary. We grew up with it. You know, it kind of has gotten old. And it blows my mind that something as cool as the mountains or the ocean could ever lose its thrill or ever lose its luster on it. But, but that's kind of how it works. That's reality that no matter how cool something is or what something is, that if you're around it for 24-7, Eventually, it just kind of becomes ordinary. And that's just part of the curse of living in a world post-Genesis 3 in the fall of man. Let me give you some examples. The new iPhone. All of you new iPhone 6ers out there, enjoy it. You've got about a couple months left of that thing being cool, and then it's just going to be a phone. All right? And I'm not just saying that because I'm jealous because I have an iPhone 5, and I'm bored with it. 
despite the fact that this thing sends text messages and emails and HD videos and can literally run my entire life and I can call somebody on the other side of the planet and like it sends a signal to a satellite and to them in less than a second, which for some reason is still not fast enough for us. And like this thing could seriously like fly a spaceship, but who cares? It's an iPhone 5. It's old news. The iPhone 6 is out. And that's just kind of how it works. Another example, two months ago, my wife and I got a new car. And it's just like a, a baseline Chevy Cruze, your standard charcoal color. And that's it. Nothing special about it. But I feel like James Bond driving that thing to work. I feel like I have the coolest car in the world. When we first brought that thing home, I put it in the parking garage. And all night, laid awake in my bed, like, thinking about my car in the garage. Like, is it okay? Is somebody trying to steal it? Should I, like, go bring it a blanket or, like, some fresh oil or something, and this summer, this summer, I will wash that thing, not in a car wash, I'll have some pride and wash it by myself in my driveway, probably every single weekend, but next weekend, or next year, I mean, next summer, I probably won't, not because I don't appreciate it, but because the 2016 cruises will be out, and my car will cease to be something that is awe-inspiring for me, and will go to just being something that gets me from A to B, and I'll still appreciate it, but I mean, you know how it goes. Last example, you see these shoes? These shoes are insanely cool. Like, are you seeing this? Are you serious? Look how fresh and bright and clean these things are. And no matter how hard I pray that they stay fresh and bright and clean, they're not going to, man. Two or three months from now, these are not going to be the shoes that you see today. I'll probably scuff them or do something dumb like jump in a puddle of mud to splash my wife. It's called flirting. That's called flirting, all right? No matter how much I want them to stay like this, they're not going to stay that way. And, and here's the point that I'm trying to make is that it's our human nature to love the emotional high that is associated with brand new shoes or cars or phones or things or marriages or relationships or jobs or crushes or drugs or you fill in the blank for you. And unfortunately for us, that same bent and that same sort of emotional pattern can carry over and play out the same way with our faith. Like, let's just be really honest tonight and all agree about this right now. Like, there are seasons of your life where your faith kind of loses its shininess, right? Like the goosebumps that you had the night of the altar call when you first accepted Christ into your heart or on that mission trip that you went on to that third world country or three weeks ago at the conference, the goosebumps that you get from that, they kind of slowly go away. If, if, you, if you've been a Christian long enough, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't experienced it yet, you will. Like the thrill of being saved and forgiven and made new, kind of slowly loses its power, which, which is crazy to me because if you stop and think about how crazy and ridiculous our faith is, like it kind of blows your mind. Like you, you'll realize it really quickly if you try to say it out loud to somebody you know who doesn't know Jesus. Like I'll, I'll just, I'll show you. Like imagine I'm talking to somebody. Hey, uh, Garrett, hey man, I want to talk to you about this whole, this whole God thing, man. Yeah, one time a long time ago, God was all by himself. It was just God, but he wasn't really by himself because he's like three separate beings, but still just one God all at the same time. I don't really, never mind, that's not really important. Anyways, that God, man, one day he just, he started talking. And when he started talking, light exploded out in every direction and the universe was made. And then he made stars and the sun and the earth and mountains and the ocean and people. And he said it was good and he was really pumped about it until one day things went bad when those people, they ate like an apple. At least I think it was an apple. And because they ate the apple, like a virgin 16-year-old girl had to give birth to the son of God. And that son of God, man, he was the man. He lived like a perfect life, but, but that's why they killed him. But three days after that, they, 
he, he conquered death, rose from the grave, and then floated up into heaven. And he's kind of left us in charge for the time being. But one day, man, he's going to split the sky in half and come back to get us on a white horse. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Like, if you stop, yeah, if you stop. <laughs> Thank you. If you stop and think about how ridiculous what we believe is, like, it, it kind of blows your mind. I'm going to quote Matt Chandler here, but he says, you know that the Holy Spirit has done a work in your heart when you can hear that out loud and go, yeah, I believe that. With every cell in my heart, I know that I know that I know that I know that that's true. In fact, I'm betting my entire life on it. That's how, bad, that's how much I know that it's true. Man, there is nothing nonchalant about your faith or the God that you put your faith in, yet still things become old to us. And that's just how it is. And since that's the reality of what you and I live in, tonight, here's the truth that I want to camp out on. Here's the truth, that God is making the old new daily. That we serve a God who continues to make all things new, including me and including new, including you. Like even now, your yesterday has been washed away and you're sitting in your chair right now, a completely new you. To quote my brother-in-law, um, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the apostle Paul says that anybody who is in Christ is being created new. The old is gone and you can bet that God is making something beautiful out of you. I think that's it. Logan, I think I got it. I tried to memorize it. God did not save you so that you could be the same person that you were last year. God did not gift you this year so you could be the same as you were in 2014. He did not gift you with 2015. And I say gifted to you because you are not entitled to this year. Do you understand that? It's not your right to be alive right now. Every day that you get, every year that you get, that's a gift from God. And he did not gift you 2015 so you could spend it around in the same junk that you spent 2014 messing around in. Isaiah 43:19 says this, I am about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry waste land. Daily you are being renewed. Daily he's washing away your yesterday and pulling you closer to him and pulling you closer to the final product that is you, whether you emotionally feel it or not. And I'm not talking about behavior modification or cleaning up your life. Behavior modification is not Christianity. Behavior modification can make you a nice person, but only Jesus can make you a new person if that makes sense. And, and I spent my entire life thinking that this Christianity thing was all about behavior modification and that God wanted me to submit begrudgingly to some list of rules that he had for me. And I, like I spent my life thinking that he wanted to like take some freedom from me. You know, that I would give my life to God and then he would put me in this metaphorical glass cage and I would look out at all my friends having fun and, all, and doing all the things that I wanted to do and sinning in all the ways that I wanted to sin. And God would go, yeah, they're having fun. And you know what? One day you get heaven, but for now, too bad. For now, behave. Get ready to spend a lot of Friday nights at home by yourself drinking sugar-free lemonade and definitely not listen, listening to secular music unless it's Switchfoot. Get ready to be doing a lot of that. All right, but, that, but here. Sorry, my throat's or my mouth is really dry. But the idea that God wants to rob or take something from you, like 
How stupid is that? He's God. He's got nothing to gain from anything that any of us had. He's not the, the ultimate fun killer up in the sky looking to shut down the life that is your party. And if you think that's what God is, you've been buying into a lie. And that should be good news for you. He's trying to take nothing from you. God is in the business of offering us something new, something much better. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you something I learned from a pastor in Portland named John Comer and what he taught me um, in the book of Mark, because I want to show you guys tonight why this whole Jesus thing has the power to change your life. So if you have your Bible, go to Mark chapter 8. That's where we're going to start. If not, it'll be up on the screen. As always, I'll read it to you. Here we go. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? So right there, the most important question in the world. Who do you say Jesus is? Because at some point, you're going to have to do something with Jesus. Because historically, he existed. Historically, he was crucified. And historically, he has had a, made a bigger impact on the world than anybody else in all of history. And he did that all without any social media. So at some point in your life, you're going to have to make a decision. Was he just a good man? Was he just a good teacher or prophet? Was he crazy? Or was he truly who he said he is, the son of God? At some point, we all need to decide for ourselves, who is Jesus? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the prophets. Then he asked them, okay, but who do you say that I am? So understand something, you guys. You are not defined by what you do. You are not defined by what you look like or, what, or the people that you hang out with or what you do on Friday nights or the mistakes that you've made in the past. Those things do not define you, but you are defined by who Jesus is to you. You are defined by who Jesus is to you. I think that was Carl Lentz who said that. I'm not really sure. It doesn't matter. You're defined by who Jesus is to you. The most critical question anybody will ever be asked. Once again, who do we say Jesus is? Peter replied, Peter hits the nail right on the head. Here we go. He says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anybody about him. And then Jesus began to tell them that the son of man, he's referring to himself, must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law, that he would be killed. Notice how plainly and simply he explains this to him, all right? He would be killed but three days later, he would rise from the dead. And this is the part of the story where Peter takes Jesus aside and reprimands him and says, no, Jesus, that ain't happening, not on my watch. And then he gets himself called Satan by the Messiah. <laughs> I love Peter, man. If you don't know Peter's stories, he's the ultimate example that you need no special skills or training or looks or money or resources to change the world for the name of Jesus Christ. If you have Jesus, you have everything that you need. You will never hear that told to you enough on Thursday night. Go to chapter 9, next chapter, starting in verse 30. This is a little bit later. Leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. All right, so we're getting closer to Jesus' final days. This is his final tour through the region of Galilee. Jesus did not want anybody to know that he was there because he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. Once again, here we go. He will be killed. But three days later, you guys, three days later, he will rise from the dead. So look, look how simple he puts it once again. He's not trying to trick them. Jesus does not speak in trick verses. 
we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of my enemies. They're going to kill me. But three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. But verse 32, they did not understand what he was saying. However, they were afraid to ask him what it meant. And that word afraid comes from the Greek word phobia, which is where we get phobia in the English. Literally kind of translates to having an obsession with a specific fear or terror. We see that word pop up time and time again to describe the disciples in light of what Jesus is trying to tell them. Go to the next chapter, chapter 10. The third time this happens, watch this. They were now on the way up to Jerusalem. So heading into Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was gonna happen to him. Listen, he said, we're gonna go up to Jerusalem where the son of man, where I will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence me, you guys, they're gonna sentence me to die and hand me over to the Romans. They're gonna mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again not once not twice but three times Jesus very plainly lays it out for them we're going to go to Jerusalem things are going to go south I'm going to get betrayed to the hands of my enemies they're going to kill me but three days later I'm going to rise from the dead so if you're a disciple like what are you expecting is going to happen you would think that they would take Jesus at his word you would think they'd they'd know what's coming you'd think that by this point nothing's going to surprise these guys but let's jump ahead way ahead verse chapter 14 We'll start in verse 25. This is after Jesus has been betrayed to his enemies. Here we go. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him and it read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said that you were gonna destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. And even the men who were crucified with him ridiculed Jesus. So Jesus was shamed And shame in our day and age is bad, but shame in Jesus' day was really bad. Like shame brought disgrace and humiliation onto your entire family. And shame was certainly not what, what was supposed to happen to the Messiah. The Messiah was supposed to come in all of his glory and put the Romans in their place, not be humiliated by them. Next verse, here we go. At noon... Darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. So noon to three was the time of the day for the daily sacrifice. And what Mark is pointing out here is that Jesus that day is the sacrifice, that he is gonna be the ultimate sacrifice. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you see that there in quotes because Jesus is actually quoting something from the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalms 22 which was written by King David 1,000 years before this would even happen, all right, which is crazy. Like, so sometime this week, grab your Bibles and go read Psalm 22. It's fun to start to see how everything in the New Testament points forward to Jesus, all right? And when you read it, keep in mind, because David prophesies about the death of the Messiah with, with great accuracy, keep in mind that not only is he writing this, Psalm 22, 1,000 years before Jesus, but it's also 100 years before crucifixion was even invented. Crazy. Keep going. Some of the bystanders misunderstood 
and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so that he could drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So in the temple at Jerusalem, there was a small room called the most holy place where the presence of God literally dwelled in. And it was separated by everything else by a veil, by a very, very thick curtain. And nobody was allowed in the most holy place. Nobody except for the priest only one time a year and only after making a lot of different sacrifices. And through his death, it's saying right here that Jesus destroyed the veil between man and the presence of God. That curtain ripped from top to bottom. Check out Hebrews 10. This is awesome when you understand the context of it. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, trusting him fully. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. So Jesus lays down his life as a sacrifice to open up the presence of God and make it available to anybody who would put their faith in it. So essentially what that means for you is God is yours now. God is open, that God is available to you. There's no longer a barrier between you and the presence of God. And you might go through seasons or you might be in a season right now where you certainly feel like there's a barrier between you and God or God certainly might feel distant, but I promise you, make no mistake that there is no barrier between you and the presence of God because Jesus breathed his last and destroyed the curtain that separates us from the presence of God. And it almost seems too good to be true. Like this is one of those sermons that's like, yeah, that, that sounds awesome and I believe it kind of, but it's not gonna apply to my life because that's like too good to be true. And that's something that we have in common with the disciples. Jesus told his disciples very plainly three times what was going to happen and every single time they missed it. And I would argue not because they weren't listening to him. I would argue that what Jesus was saying just sounded too impossible to be true. Like that night, that Friday night, I can't imagine how confused everybody must have been that their, their beloved Jesus, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, he was not supposed to die. He was not supposed to be killed, especially not by the Romans. He was not supposed to be humiliated and made fun of, especially not by pagans. Everything seemed so upside down and that Friday night, man, that must have been the darkest Friday night in history. And as far as they know, to their knowledge, Jesus is dead. But thank you, God, for Mark chapter 16, because that's not the end of the story. Here we go. Saturday evening when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salami, I don't, that's probably not how you say it, but that's what we're going to say because I'm hungry. They went out and they purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. So once again, they're not going to the tomb to see if Jesus has risen from the dead. They're going because it's a Jewish, a Jewish burial custom to anoint the body with spices and mourn over it. They're going to mourn over Jesus' body because they're sure that he's dead. They're sure that the story is over. Here we go. Keep going. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and they saw the 
the stone, which was very large, and it had already been rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen from the dead. One of the best lines ever. Look, this is where they laid his body. So now go tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. And here's one of my new favorite parts of scripture. Just as he told you before he died. It was just as Jesus told you it was going to be. Yeah, yeah, sure things sounded a little bit crazy, but everything played out just as Jesus said that it would. And so here's my question for us. Will there be a point, and maybe at the end of all this, when, you, when you're literally standing with Jesus and you're looking back on your life and you're asking him all your questions at one point in that conversation, will he look at you and say this? Will he say, hey, you know all that life to the full stuff that I talked about so much that I said was available to you during life? You know how he said that the spirit that raised me from the grave was alive and at work in you and because of that anything was possible? You know how I said all that? Well, all of it was just as I said it would be. So how come you didn't live like it was true? How come you didn't live like you really believe that? See, for us as Christians, I believe that, that we are very, very good um, at accepting the truth that Jesus died to forgive our sins. That yeah, Jesus died and he washed away our yesterdays. Our sins are gone, we get heaven forever. That's a ridiculous concept in and of itself. But for the most part, we're like, yeah, I believe that. I believe that. But here's the, and that's the good news, but here's how the good news continues. And, and here's the part I think a lot of us have a lot more of a hard time grabbing a hold of. Is that yeah, Jesus died to save us from something. But Jesus, three days later, conquered death and walked out of his tomb as evidence that not only has Jesus saved us from something, but Jesus has saved us into something new. All right, so, so Jesus died for our sins and he's saving us from something, but you gotta hear me say tonight that Jesus is saving you from something, but it doesn't stop there. He's saving you into a brand new life to the full that makes you new every single day that could be yours tonight if you just accept and live like it's true. If you just live like it's true, the curtain is torn. The barrier between us and the presence of God is now gone. There is no barrier in that presence that people only imagined about now lives inside of us. Check out Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Ridiculous verse. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, that spirit from the most holy place that we talked about, that spirit lives in you right now. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you, which means that the ceiling of what God can do in your life is gone. It hasn't just been removed. It's been destroyed, all right? Eugene Peterson says this in his paraphrase of the Bible. He says that God, quote unquote, goes for the jugular when he sends Jesus to conquer death and remove that veil and tear that, curtain, tear that curtain in half, which means that there's now no limit to what God can do in your life. There is no limit to the prayers that he can and wants to answer. There's no limits to the dreams that you can dream for the kingdom, no limit to the things that he can save you from, and no limit to the life that he can save you into. There is no limit to Jesus's ability to make you new. But do you really believe that? Like, do you really believe it? That the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the grave, that actual spirit is alive 
alive and at work inside of you right now. Do you, do you really believe that? Because we give the disciples a bad rep all the time. I do it, I know, because they sat there three times and listened to Jesus tell them something. And I bet you they were nodding and were, and were agreeing with Jesus, but they did not believe him. And can't we do that all the time? Do you really believe that the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead is currently making you new while you're sitting in your chair right now listening to this message? Like, can you imagine what 600 young adults can do for this city who truly believe that the spirit of God that raised, that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at work inside of you right now, that not only do we get heaven forever, but that God is daily, he's daily pulling us forward into the kingdom of God, making us new. That if the resurrection is possible, then anything is possible. If God can raise somebody from the dead, then imagine what God can do with a dead or dying relationship. If God can raise somebody from the dead, imagine what he can do with a dead or, or dying dream or passion or calling that you might have. If God can raise Jesus Christ from the dead, then imagine what he can do with your addictions. Imagine, imagine God going for the jugular on your pornography addiction murdering that thing and replacing it with a new and stronger addiction to the fullness of life that's available to you right now through knowing Jesus Christ. Imagine him doing that because you cannot have fullness of life while you have an addiction to some, something like pornography. You can't have those two things at the same time. Imagine God going for the jugular, destroying those things and bringing up something new and beautiful from the ashes because he can. You guys are great. Make me feel special. The seasons, and band, you guys can come back out. The seasons are saying this to us right now, I believe. Like every fall and winter, things get cold. Animals hibernate. The leaves shrivel up and die. Flowers don't grow. Things get white and things get gray. And it's all very beautiful. But I think that nature tells us a story because then every year, spring comes back around with a fresh start for us. And God, and I, and I can back this up with so much scripture, but God designed us around fresh starts. Not just every new year, not just every new season, but every 24 hours you wake up in the morning to a new you and a new beginning and a fresh start. That's how he designed it. His grace and his mercy is new and fresh every single morning that you wake up. And even more so than that, there's a, there's a song by Switchfoot called Always. Yeah. And one of the lines in that, I love this, he, he says, hallelujah, I'm a wretched man, but hallelujah, because every breath is a second chance. Literally every breath, you're being made new. Every breath, the previous breath is washed away. Man, there is nothing stagnant or complacent about your faith. Every second you're being pulled closer and closer to the final product that is you. Check out this quote. You guys are gonna love this. This is John Eldridge. What if nature is speaking to us? What if sunrise and sunset tell the tale every single day, remembering Eden's glory, prophesying Eden's return? What if it shall all be restored? What if spring and summer are nature's way of expressing what Jesus was in fact trying to tell us? After all, nature is one of God's words to us. And if we paid close attention, we would discover something of great joy and wonder. The restoration of the world played out before us each spring and summer is precisely what God is promising us about our lives. Jesus preached far more than the gospel of sin management. And there's that behavior modification again. Behavior modification makes you nice, but Jesus makes you new. Jesus preached far more than the gospel of sin management. The good news he brought 
was much, much greater than forgiveness. Jesus came to announce the coming of the kingdom of God. And whether you emotionally feel that right now or not, that doesn't matter. Don't let your emotions be any sort of indicator as to whether or not God's doing a work in your heart or whether or not he's making you new. You don't need to feel it all the time to understand that it's real. He tells us that it's real. And if you would disagree, I would say, okay, well, there's your opinion and then there's the Bible. And although I think you're great, I really do, I'm probably going to side with the author of all things. And I'll quote John Mark Comer here one more time. You and I now live in a day and age where dead messiahs stand up and walk out of their tombs. Yeah. You and I now live in a day and age where kings of the universe stare death in the face and conquer it. Jesus Christ is back from the dead, and he is in the business of making us new and restored every single day, which means, and check this, that you now no longer have the excuse that you're too messed up or that your past is too shady or dark or dirty or whatever adjective you want to throw there. You no longer have that excuse because Jesus Christ is back from the dead, and he is in the business of making you new. And you also no longer have the excuse that you've been a Christian your entire life, and you've heard all of these things before. This is nothing new. Everything's kind of just ordinary right now. That's no longer an excuse for you too because God does not save you so that you could be the same today as you were yesterday. He's a God who is perpetually pulling you forward into the final product that is you. There is nothing complacent about your faith. Jesus is back from the dead and anything is possible. Jesus Christ is back from the dead. Relationships can be restored. Jesus is back from the dead and our, our broken pasts can be made new. I'll be transparent with you guys here really quick, but right around the time Sam and I, my wife now, first started dating, we had a lot of very difficult conversations. A lot of you might be able to relate with this, the conversations about sexual history and your past, you know? And, and Sam, she's, she's held her, fa- her purity her entire life at a very, in a very high place and has protected it and has fought for it. And when we first met, she was a virgin and she was saving herself for the man that she was going to marry. And I admired that so much about her. That was such a beautiful thing about her. And I would have loved her if that had not been the case, but, but I admired that a lot because I was not like that. I did not hold my purity in the same kind of way. I was not a virgin when Sam and I met and I was not able to give her the same thing that she was gonna give me and, and obviously you see how that leads to a lot of not very fun conversations but those, fun, those not very fun conversations concluded in such a beautiful way. One night, and I'll never forget this, she said something along the lines of this. She said, hey, I believe, that what, I believe what God says about you, that you are a new creation, that the old is gone because Jesus died and that the new you is here because Jesus rose again. I'm in love with the Doug today, not the Doug six years ago. Even if I wanted to marry the Doug six years ago, I I couldn't because he's gone. Your new creation today, you're white as snow. And her saying that to me, like that kind of set me free to finally give myself permission to accept that very same thing about me because I was having a hard time doing that. And all of a sudden with that permission, God kind of went for the jugular once again on that and showed me, he's like, bro, you're white as snow. And then he took it a step further and, and he's, and I prayed this prayer, but honestly, he's helping me legitimately forget memories prior to Sam. And I prayed that. You can pray as big a prayers as you want. God's like, honestly, like he's like blotting out past memories prior to Sam. It's crazy the things that God can do. And this might sound cheesy to you, but on our wedding night, I genuinely felt like I was a virgin. And that might make, yeah. 
That might make some of you cheer. That might make some of you giggle. For some of you, maybe God brought you here tonight because you needed him to say that to you through my story. Like you needed to hear that so bad that you are white as snow. If you believe that that's not possible to you, you're being played by the enemy and that should anger you. You are white as snow. Jesus Christ is back from the dead. And here's another one. Generational curses can be broken. I have a really good, yeah. I have a really good friend. He's a mentor in my life, means the world to me. His name is Justin. And Justin kind of um, came from a long line of, of generations that um, just were having a hard time, like full of divorce, full of addiction, full of abuse. His mom tried to abort him and she failed. But even though she failed, he grew up not really feeling loved or wanted and it kind of led to a depression. And in his teen years, led to a night where he actually tried to kill himself. And, and God, thank God, he intervened in a way that only God does and stopped it. And not audibly, but said, hey, Justin, I know you're trying to just finally put an end to this long string of generational curses by taking your life. But instead of taking your life how about you and I put an end to this by you starting something new right now because I want to do something new through you and that that's not that's not I make that sound easy just by saying that I think Justin would tell you that that involves fighting for it that involves battling every single day but Justin met and married the girl of his dreams that if you if you knew them today you would you would do everything you could to to pray for and emulate the kind of marriage that he has and not only that but but he's raised two sons that right now are, my, are two of my best friends, two brothers to me that mean the world to me. And, and those two sons have in turn turned around and married the girls of their dreams who also mean the world to me, one of which is about to have a baby and start another generation of a family that is no longer subjected to a generational curse because a long time ago, Justin decided that Jesus Christ is back from the dead and generational curses are BS. They are. That Jesus Christ is back from the dead and he can do more than that. Jesus is back from the dead. Addictions can be broken. If God can bring Jesus back, then he can certainly bring your dreams and callings and passions back from the dead. If God can bring Jesus back from the dead, then think about what he could do to the depression that you're dealing with right now. Think of how he could soothe the anxiety that you're dealing with right now or heal the sicknesses that you have right now. And even in the midst of the storm, he's with you in an overwhelmingly comforting way as he slowly, day by day, pulls us more and more into the kingdom of God. So what, what's gonna happen right now is the band is gonna play that song by Switchfoot, always. Switchfoot in church, man, here we go. To me, this song is all about being made new. This is a song about living your life in a constant state of fresh start, like a perpetual state of fresh start, if that makes sense. I just liked how that sounded. That since Jesus conquered death, the barrier between us and God has been shattered. He is always yours. And you are always his. Always. And that hallelujah, every breath for us is a second chance. For this, so for this song, you don't have to stand up. I mean, you can if you want, but this is just a time for you to just sit and try to internalize these truths. That you've been saved to something because of his death, but you've been saved to something else because of his life and one day we're going to stand 
with God and actually literally hang out with Jesus Christ. And, and I want him to, this, sounds, this might sound weird, but put his arm around me and, and, and we can look back on everything and he can say, you see, it was exactly, exactly as I said it would be. I'm glad that you lived like you believed it was true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this night. Thank you, Jesus, that you are back from the dead and what that means for our lives, that not only has that curtain been torn and the presence of God is ours forever, always, but that daily you make us new by the resurrection of your son and that you save us into something so awesome, God. I don't know what you, what you have to do, God, but, but God, get us to hear that, get us to internalize that truth and get us to live like it's true. God, I can't imagine what a group of this many young adults could do in a city like this if we genuinely believed and lived like the spirit that raised your son from the grave legitimately is at work inside of us right now. God, make that known to us more and more daily in whatever way you have to do that, God. We love you and we give this time for you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Love you guys.